My name is Mike Sayers, and uh, I have uh, been in staff here for about 14 years, which is just about how long we've been at church. And um, we have been going through, since last week, this sermon of Jesus, which maybe is his most famous, uh, begins with the Beatitudes. And uh, I'd like to begin by asking you a question today. And the question is, how would your life be different, or how would life for other people rather be different, if Jesus were to come and take your place? I'm having a hard time with this. Okay. There we go. What if Jesus took your place at home? How would your roommates react? Would it be different than the way they're reacting to you now? Would the dishes be done more often? What if he performed your work when you were on the job? Would your fellow employees notice a difference in the office, in the feeling of the office? All those intangibles? Would your bosses notice a difference in the amount of work that got done? Or the accuracy with which that work got done? What if uh, Jesus sat in your desk at school and took your place in the classroom? Would it make any difference in your scores at the end of the term? Would discussions during class time take a different direction, perhaps, than they normally do? What if Jesus filled my place here at the podium? How would this service be different? What more might you learn? What Revelations might you receive directly from the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Jesus wants to do. In the Beatitudes, Jesus sets out several character qualities that, in essence, describe himself the way he interacts, the way he leads, the way he goes about life. And we, as followers of him, would hopefully go in the same direction. And whether or not you consider yourself a leader is not the issue, but you are a person who has influence every place you go, in the home, in the workplace, at school, and so what would it look like? And so these kind of thoughts make me wonder, does anybody ever see God shine through my skin, my voice, my actions, my words? 
So from the beginning of this greatest sermon of Jesus, we're faced with the demand that we get a new heart. That we become a new person. That there is actually a judgment that's approaching. And unless our righteousness, unless the things that we do that are correct, unless that stuff exceeds what Jesus would say is the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, then we will never enter the kingdom of God. He says in verse 20 of chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. Unless our righteousness exceeds people who are doing their best to do every little jot and tittle of God's law correctly, we will never enter the kingdom of God. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now Jesus says uh, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. So the goal of Jesus is not to somehow change the manners of society, but rather to change the hearts of sinners like you and me. So so here's the weird thing. If you had a society where nobody did anything wrong, ever, Jesus wouldn't still be satisfied. If you lived in a perfect society where everybody treated everybody else exactly the way that God's law said they should be treated, Jesus still would not be satisfied. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28, give us a hint about why. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the heart is who you are. It's your soul. It's that thing that will live forever even after your body decays and is in the grave. At least until you get a new one per the resurrection. But that's the thing that Jesus is concerned about. The heart. And if you're like me, then... Sometimes the branch can look a whole lot different than the roots. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. God is instructing the prophet Samuel exactly how he goes about his business. God says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, 
But the Lord looks at the heart. Because out of the heart are all the issues of life. That's what comes out of the heart. Matthew 12, Jesus himself says this, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I don't know if you guys have come to realize this, but you know when you're really upset, when you're really frustrated, when you're really tired, when you're really angry, when you're even hungry or whatever, that's when it seems like the filters are gone and what's in your heart actually comes out of your mouth. I deal with this on a daily basis just with myself. It's like God's little way of showing me that I'm still a sinner. I still need forgiveness. I still need to learn what it means to be a Jesus follower. Because, you know, I can deal with something fairly well and then turn around and just be calling people names, being upset. Swiss, I mean, I give, I, I call the snide remarks come out of my mouth, under my breath, of course. I mean, as I said, nobody hears my bad language as much as God does during prayer. Because that's when I just kind of let it all out. I'm thinking, it's in there. He knows it's in there. I might as well let it out. And so my worst words come out during prayer. I'm not ashamed of that because I think it's my attempt to have some kind of integrity, to be the same on the outside as I am on the inside. You know, when we look at a, a structural beam in a building, we will say that a steel beam has integrity if it looks really strong and well-formed on the outside. And we know from microscopic analysis that molecularly everything's going in the same direction. There are no hidden faults or cracks in that beam. That's why we say a beam, a steel beam, like the one in that room over there, has integrity. So when Jesus is talking about being pure in the heart, he's talking about us having integrity, us being on the same on the outside as we are on the inside. So, so our identity of Christ should be really a process of letting go of certain things and moving distracting things out of the way so that we are identically the same in the branch as we are in the root. Now, you don't... You know, sometimes people say, well, oh, children, they're so pure and innocent. Well, those people have never been parents. All right. I love G.K. Chesterton, but we part ways when it comes to how we view little children because G.K. never had any. But I, I never had to teach my children how to be selfish. No, I had to teach them how to share. It is when we are pure in heart that we see God. So what does it mean to see God? I mean, this is one of those strange biblical words because we're always talking about seeing God, it seems, if we read our Bibles, you know. That I may dwell in the temple 
and gaze upon His holiness. And want to see God. Moses wanted to... David, King David wanted to see God. Moses saw God, we are told. I think Elijah the prophet wanted to see God, but the most he could muster uh, was God's backside, evidently. So... Let's talk about what we need to see God. So in the same way, like when I say, when I call Kaiser Permanente and I say, I want to see Dr. Pauline. I don't mean, can I see Dr. Pauline from a distance? And I don't mean, could I gaze upon a photo of Dr. Pauline hanging in your office? What I mean is, can I have an appointment with Dr. Pauline? Can I somehow be admitted into his presence in that stupid little room where I've got to, you know, put on this gown that only opens in the back? Or whatever it is. I mean, I want to be in the presence of Dr. Pauline. So when we say we want to see God, or when we say that blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, there is an idea that we will be ushered into God's very presence. The second thing that happens, I think, when we see God is that we immediately realize, in some ways, what a terrible and awesome thing it is to be in the presence of the Most High. Usually people are falling on their faces and repenting or saying, like, kill me now. Job said this, the patriarch Job, he said, and I'll do this in King James English so you know it's old, I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's what it means to see God. In some ways, it means to be coming into contact, not only with the Most High, but then with the very true nature of yourself which allows you to repent and move those things out of the way so you can see God more clearly all over again. It's somewhat cyclical, but hopefully it's one of these kind of spiraling upward things. I love old people in the faith. I love people who've been walking with Jesus 50 years because it is the slightest little thing they do wrong that fills them with mourning, and they ask you forgiveness for having the wrong tone of voice. Thinking, are you kidding me? Seriously? You're asking for my forgiveness because you used the wrong tone of voice? It's like, I'm not even anywhere close to that. But you see, there's integrity there. They have seen God. They have seen themselves. And they are blessed to be that kind of a Christian. Verse 9, Jesus goes on. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Now, in a world that's characterized by rivalry and conflict, a keeper of the peace is rare. A maker of peace is even more rare. Or still rarer. I'm not sure which one that is. Is it rarer or more rare? Rarest. I guess it's more rare. Thank you. Anyway, you know, when it comes to being a leader, um, 
those who can set aside their own selfish ambition for the good of others are the ones who really move any kind of organization or church forward. And here's the deal. Very often, a church's ineffectiveness is really more related to the fact that people are not getting along than about anything else. Jesus said that people will know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. I'll go on to, th to say that this is even reflected in the business world. That, that those of you who have ever been laid off or fired from a job most likely were not fired because you weren't doing the job properly. Now they will manufacture, they will f look at you under a microscope to come up with reasons that they can fire you for not doing your job correctly, when the real reason very often is you're just not getting along with other people. You can't play in the sandbox very nice with the rest of the children. And they want to get you out of the office because you're making things difficult. You're making people uncomfortable. It's amazing how often this happens. But they will go to great lengths to show how you're not doing your job when the truth is you're doing your job just as well as everybody else. That's how important it is to be a peacemaker in the everyday workday world. This is really important in the church too. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, instructed Timothy and Titus to appoint leaders in the church who were, quote, not quarrelsome and, quote, peaceable and considerate. I brought up an example last week of a pastor in Seattle who is neither one of those, and his flock is finally rebelling and saying, enough. You do not fit the requirements that the Apostle Paul laid down in his letters to Timothy and Titus for getting along with other people. You're a bully. Stop it. Now, when Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God, he doesn't tell us how to become a child of God. He simply says that children of God are, in fact, peacemakers. He says the people who are peacemakers will be recognized as children of God at the judgment. And they'll be called peacemakers and they'll be welcomed into the, into the Father's house. So how does one become a child of God? Just so you know, like this is the main thing at SCUM. Like, and I'm trying to keep the main thing the main thing at SCUM. And it's about becoming a child of God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, we read this. Yet to all who did receive him, meaning Christ, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So how do you become a child of God? It's through believing in Jesus. Very simple. Believing that he was who he said he was that he died, 
that he rose again from the grave, is now living and sitting at the right hand of the Father, that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. If you can believe that kind of thing, by the grace of God, then you are a child of God. Galatians 3.26, the Apostle Paul says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. In other words, we become sons and daughters of God by trusting in Christ for our forgiveness and hope. So the Apostle Paul agrees with the Apostle John. That's how it's done. And this is what happens, I think, evidently, is that when you come into the family of God, what God does is He breaks off a piece of His Father's heart, this peacemaking heart that He has, and He places it inside of you, and it becomes part of your heart. And then it begins to grow and take over more of your heart. That's my hope, at least. He's saying that the people who have become children of God begin to take on the characteristics of their Heavenly Father as evidenced in Jesus Christ. We know from Scripture that our Heavenly Father is a God of peace. Romans 16.20, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Hebrews 13.20, if you want to look it up. We know that heaven is a world of peace. And we know that God is a peacemaker. Just to prove that to you, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. And it says this, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He made peace by the blood of the cross. Here's the deal. People want to look at God as this big ogre in the sky with this giant sledgehammer who's ready to smash you the moment you stamp out of line. And that is the farthest thing from the truth. The truth of the matter is, is God is a reconciler. He is taking a world that is collectively shaking its fist toward heaven, saying, leave us alone. We can do it ourselves. why I hate the song Imagine by John Lennon. Because it's all about people doing it on their own. And I'm not saying John Lennon was an unbeliever. He may have come to Christ before he died, according to reports that I've read. But for that particular song, it's all about the world doing it on its own. And what God is saying is, you poor, pathetic little humans, you will never be able to get this right here. Let me break off a piece of my heart and graft it to yours so that you can become like me. I mean, the world is terrible, right? Hopefully the church is a place, a sphere, where people can come together and begin to see some of the nature of Christ. I mean, yes, the church is not perfect, all right? You want to point the Crusades, yet again, go right ahead. Even the Crusades were a misguided attempt to do the right thing. There were radical Muslims who were killing Christians left and right in the Holy Land. And I'm not saying a military intervention was the right thing to do for the Pope. But if the church has been bad, 
then the world has been much more bad. If the church has been bigoted, then the world, because that's the only other thing that there is besides the church, has been much more bigoted. Just read your newspapers. It is the Western world where women and slaves have come up from the bottom of society. It is the Western world that has been most impacted by Christianity. I mean, even my own lovely people, the Greeks, had democracy for the select few men, noblemen, landowners. The Greeks have been impacted by the gospel in a positive way for all the wonderful things that God put in their culture to begin with. Greeks are much nicer because of Jesus. Trust me. Back in the ancient world, Cretans, and I'm half Cretan, were, were known to be liars and gluttons and uh, just really raunchy kinds of people. But I'll tell you now, if you go to Crete and you're a tourist, they treat you as if, you know, you were family. It's wonderful. I think, actually, the people who get furthest away from God when they hear the gospel actually come running the fastest back to the Lord. That's my opinion. Okay, that's not in the notes, I'm sorry. <laughs> I had a Greek moment there. So God is a peace-loving God. He's a peacemaking God. The whole history of redemption, the climaxes in the death and resurrection of Jesus, is God's strategy to bring a world in rebellion against him back to himself. He took it on the chin for us. He took it in the forehead for us. He took it in the hands and in the feet and in the side for us so that we could be reconciled to God. And those who accept Jesus become children of the Most High. In Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48, Jesus says this, You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you just love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. There are things that we're supposed to do. Not just to the people who like us, but to the people who hate us. Because that's what God is like. He's a peacemaker. So probably Jesus thinks of peacemaking as all the acts of love by which that we try to, to close the gap of broken relationships, of hatred, of anger between us and other people. Probably. So the question I have is, is there anybody here in the church that you've got a broken relationship with where it's simply not working? 
Why is it you feel uncomfortable? Because you've been given a piece of God's heart and you know you can't leave it that way. James 3.17 James, the little brother of Jesus, says this, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. First pure and then peace-loving. First pure and then peace-loving. First pure and then peace-loving. Blessed are the pure in heart, and then blessed are the peacemakers. It's a constant refrain. You cannot separate one from the other. You can't have peacemaking without being pure in heart. So if you think that you can go home and that you can make peace with your spouse by simply stuffing down what you really think, it's not going to work. Because you have no integrity. You're not the same on the inside as you are on the outside. And what Jesus wants is you to be pure and peace-loving. I have seen, and I know this happens with both young brides and young grooms, with both husbands and wives, but I have seen on more than one occasion a young wife full of hope the promise of the marriage that is before her begin to be disillusioned because things are not working out well in the character of her young husband. And so instead of bringing it up, instead of having integrity and being the same on the inside as she is on the outside, she just stuffs it down. And she keeps stuffing it down because she wants peace at any price. And then finally she stuffs it down so deep and so long under so much pressure it cannot contain itself anymore. And you get Krakatoa east of Java. You get Mount Vesuvius. Just boom. I mean, it all comes out and she's done with the marriage. And she's made a mistake and she's going to get divorce papers. And there's no turning back. Men do this too, by the way. There is a, a marriage I'm thinking of that was somewhat similar. Um, the guy on the upper left is Eric Bain. He was my associate pastor here at SCUM back in the early 2000s. Great guy. But I got him as damaged goods. And the reason that I got him as damaged goods was because that scenario that I just got done playing out to you was what had happened in his young marriage. He and his wife, Christina, had a, a son named Chase. And the breakup was really, really hard on Eric, my associate pastor, and Christina, his ex-wife, because they had to figure out how to do that visitation child thing, back and forth and back and forth. And then I remember when uh, Christina began to uh, become romantically involved with Scott, Eric went into a depression. When, when she married Scott, Eric really, I mean, it was over, right? And then she got pregnant, and it was like never going to happen. 
And so Christina and Scott had a little boy named Caden. Eric was devastated. His life had fallen apart. But because God is a God of redemption, we were actually speaking at Colorado Community Church one time, just talking about scum of the earth. And uh, we obviously offered people a chance to come and uh, see if they wanted to support scum of the earth financially or come and help out as mentors for people at scum. And so this young, beautiful girl uh, comes up and starts asking Eric all these questions about uh, what it means to help out a scum of the earth. And so um, Eric proceeded to grab a whole lot more information about her than he needed, like her phone number, as opposed to her email address. And so he calls her up to see, would you like to go out and talk about how you can help out a scum of the earth over coffee? <laughs> you know, there's part of me that really respects him for this. And part of me that doesn't, but anyway. <laughs> So he goes out and uh, uh, he meets Courtney. Uh, they have a lot in common. Uh, they fall in love. And uh, one New Year's Eve, I do a wedding for Eric and Courtney. It was fantastic. Now, the difficulty became, obviously, um, still the visitation back and forth. And um, so Eric and Courtney um, took a position. He took a position as a pastor in California, so they went to California. And then it really got difficult because they had to fly Chase back and forth between his mom and her husband and his dad and his wife. And they finally thought, this, this cannot go on. We've got to move back to Colorado because it's just too difficult. And so they came back to Colorado. That's all I knew. Eric took a job as a pastor at uh, a church up north in one of the suburbs there, young vibrant church, and he did a great job. The next Christmas, Eric and Courtney sent out photos, as many people do during Christmas, and that is the photo they sent. Because across the top row is Eric and Courtney. Next to Courtney is Christina, Eric's first wife. And next to Christina is Scott, and they are holding Chase between the four of them. And then Eric and Courtney had a little girl, and then Scott and Christina had a little boy. And this Christmas photo threw me for a loop. I'm thinking, like, this is wrong. <laughs> but this is so good. How can it be wrong? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's right. And so I had to find out what happened because it was freaking me out. And so I called Eric, and he goes, it was all Courtney. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I'll let you talk to her. So Courtney said, Mike, it was just getting to be really difficult unless I decided to become friends with Christina and Scott. You see, God had called Courtney. She's a fairly new Christian, actually, before Eric met her. And he had broken off a piece of his heart and put it, attached it to her heart. And this peacemaker thing was taking root and coming around. And she said, this is wrong that we are at such enmity with one another. I am going to make peace between Eric's first wife and Eric. Between Eric's mom, or between Chase's mom and Chase's dad. And so she became friends with Eric's first wife. Which just, I want to say this, that if I were Eric, that would totally unnerve me. 
Like, what are they talking about? Are they comparing me? Like, what's going on here? I would be really... But to Eric's credit, he went along with it. And this was the result. This, my friends, is what peacemaking looks like in flesh and blood. And they're still friends to this day. So, this is what I think. I think we need to make peace with people even if we're right. I think we need to make peace with people even if we're right. Pure in heart, peace-loving. There needs to be a tenacious meekness about the way we go about things. I know you've heard it said, hate the sin and love the sinner. But I think I'd like to say, how about forget about hating anything and just live the alternative? You want to be consistent. You want to be pure in heart. You want to make peace. You want to be peaceable. You can't want to both save the babies and blow up Iraqi children. You can't want to do both of those. There's got to be some consistency. Our job is not to make everybody else right, but to make ourselves right. To be makers and maintainers, as the Amplified Bible says, makers and maintainers of peace. Let's go on to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to walk a lonely path. And you've got to be willing to suffer for doing the right thing. A servant is not above her master. A student is not above his teacher. If they did these things to Jesus, then they will surely do them to us for doing the right thing. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness is more than just a series of doing the right things. It's a state of being that pervades your life. A life devoted to righteousness is going to make people feel uncomfortable. According to John Piper, if you cherish chastity, your life will be an attack on people who love free sex. You don't even have to do anything. You want to make somebody uncomfortable? Let them know you're a 25-year-old virgin. 
It's the way it happens. You don't even say anything. I remember um, dating a girl when I was in my early 20s and uh, letting her know I was a virgin by the grace of God. I really don't want to take any credit for that because um, every time I tried not to be, the Lord made sure that I stayed a virgin. But it made her extremely uncomfortable to date me. I didn't even want to make her feel uncomfortable. It just happened. If you embrace temperance, whether you don't drink or just drink a little bit, you'll make people who get drunk really uncomfortable because they don't trust you. If you're not drunk, and they are. If you're not high, and they're high, they get paranoid. That's right before they ask you to be the designated driver, though, so hopefully that works out. If you pursue self-control in your eating, your life going to indict people who are given to gluttony. Ever then that awkward feeling when you're ready to dive into the chocolate fudge sundae, you know, the banana split, and someone orders an apple? <laughs> it's that kind of thing. If you live simply and happily, you will show other people the folly of their luxury. When they find out that you have been, you know, not buying a new carpet, you know, not doing great landscaping to the outside of your house, not, you know, not really keeping up with the Joneses uh, for 20 years, your neighbor could upset a bit at you, even though you've been supporting missionaries for 20 years. It's, it's just kind of what happens. They're not okay with you being retro to 1982. If you walk humbly with your God, you will expose the pride in people. People don't like being made to look like they're proud, even if they are. There's a lack of integrity there. But just want to say, people want to appear to be humble, you know? I mean, I try to be humble. I just get upset when nobody notices. If you're punctual and you work hard, if you're punctual and you work hard, you're going to expose people's um, lateness and laziness. You guys ever work with co-workers and like go back from break on time to your desk and they're still smoking downstairs in the alley? It's like they don't like that. You're making them look bad. All you're doing is trying to be fair to your employer, trying to give your employer an honest day's work for an honest day's wages. If you speak to compassion with people, you're going to throw folks who are crass and angry into sharp relief. And people do not like being made to look like jerks. If you're earnest about something 
and not flippant, you'll make flippant pe people look flippant. And they don't like that. They would rather appear clever. But because of your earnestness and sincerity, they're going to appear flippant and not clever. And if you are spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of people around you. Just tell people that you're a Christian, that you go to church. Watch what happens. Jesus says in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now that's one possible response, hating the light and not accepting it. We've gone through that. But what about all the unbelievers in your life who are neither converted to Christianity nor persecuting you, who are just civil, even polite? Why is that? How come they don't react like this? Everybody's is not put into sharp relief. Well, <clears throat> there's two possible explanations to that. I'm afraid the first one is our fault. Our light is under a bushel. Our lamp is under a bushel. We are, we are hiding the truth that we have inside. We're not letting people see it so they can't be convicted, obviously, because we're not letting it out. That's one possible explanation. And the other possible explanation is you are, in fact, being a light to people. You just haven't seen the results yet. And the results could be either that they are rejoicing and getting closer to Jesus because of you, or they are being put into sharp relief. I mean, Jesus said this. Like, what is he, some kind of a naive, sophomoric teacher? Is that what's going on here? Who doesn't, he doesn't know what it means to be persecuted? To scream with pain? Or is this the message of someone who has seen something and tasted something about the reality that most people have never even imagined? Could there be something to this? That the kingdom of heaven comes to people who are righteousness, who are righteous. This is the Lord speaking. He can say this because he knows that beyond the shadow of a doubt, there is nothing that you can do and be persecuted for in this life that will not be rewarded for in such great quantities in heaven that you will not forget about it. Matthew 5, 11 through 12 says this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is said of Nicholas Ridley, for whom Ridley Hall in Cambridge is named, the theological college there, that when he was being burned at the stake in Oxford, 
that he turned around and kissed the stake because he was about to suffer for his Lord. I don't get that. I don't know if I can get that until I'm that person who's being persecuted. Those Christians in Syria and Iran and Iraq who are being martyred for their faith. I don't know if you know this, if you've been paying attention to the news reports, but they're crucifying Christians again in the Middle East. They are beheading some of them, even little children. They are cutting in two because of their professed faith in Jesus Christ. It's still happening. You get persecuted for two reasons. One, because you do the right thing. And the other reason, because you believe the right person. Jesus. This isn't up there. My mistake on the PowerPoint. But Luke chapter 16, Jesus has just said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's after that comes the persecution and the mockery. And it says in the gospel that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they scoffed at him. They were lovers of money. In other words, Jesus' attitude toward money is an attack on their love of money. There's a difference between being persecuted for doing the right thing and being persecuted for believing the right thing. Now, Christians in the business world understand this much more than Christians in church. Sometimes it doesn't matter how well you do your job, it's your Christianity itself that becomes offensive. I don't know if you saw the report, but on Vanderbilt University campus, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship is no longer allowed to have a presence that's sanctioned by the university. They've kicked InterVarsity off campus. Why? Because they don't like what they believe. I mean, I'm serious. This is reported in Christianity Today just last week. They've banned InterVarsity. I mean... Seriously, I've never known a super dangerous intervarsity person, but obviously they are. This is intervarsity, you know? This is the, the crazy ones, the charismatic ones, the wild and woolly ones, the crusaders. This is intervarsity, the people who like to read books and think about things deeply, theologically. They're dangerous. You can't have them on campus because they believe in Jesus. I'm going to end with uh, this uh, little story about Jim Caviezel, the actor. He's on some, like, crime drama thing on TV right now, right? But remember uh, several years ago, he was the Christ in The Passion of the Christ. They gave him a fake nose and gave him brown contacts for his eyes, so he looked more Semitic. But he played Jesus. And Mel Gibson warned him before he cast him in the role of Jesus in the Passion of the Christ, you know, this may have an adverse effect on your career. It has tanked the career of people in the past who played Jesus. Max von Sydow for quite a long time. 
tab hunter for quite a long time. And you know what? That's what happened. Jim Caviezel's career tanked for a while after he played Jesus of Nazareth. He was speaking at the congregation of First Baptist in Orlando, Florida, and uh, he said the passion of the Christ seriously limited his career, saying that he's being rejected, quote-unquote, in his own industry. The actor wasn't surprised by the reaction to the film because Caviezel said that Jesus is just as controversial now as he was 2,000 years ago. Now, while Jim Caviezel is an avowed follower of Jesus, it's ironic that it wasn't his personal faith that got him blacklisted in Hollywood, but it was his portrayal of Jesus that got him blacklisted for a while in Hollywood. Usually, playing at being a Christian, you know, doesn't elicit a very difficult response out of people. If you're just pretending to be a Christian. It's when you're the real thing that people get upset, but in his case, it was playing being a Christian. There's a story about him being interviewed, and I think you can find it on the web someplace. But the interviewer kept asking Caviezel, like, well, so what's it like to, to be Jesus? And how, how did you feel when, when, you, when, you, when you healed that guy? And he was lame and he started walking. And then Jim had to keep saying, look, it wasn't me. It was a role that I was playing. I, I just played the part of Jesus. I didn't heal anybody, really. No interview went on, yeah, 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 that's no, great, great. And so, um, like, how did it, you know, like, like, wasn't it difficult when, when, when they nailed you to the cross? Like, didn't that hurt a lot? And Jim went up to say, look, that wasn't me. That was on a cross. I mean, it was all special effects. Uh, I was just playing a role. <laughs> and so the interview finally got it, and they said, okay, well, thanks, Jim. And they're, they're interviewing him, you know, outside in the backyard somewhere by a pool. And so Caviezel gets up and then walks across the top of the pool uh, <laughs> off into the, the distance of the backyard. It was obviously special effects. But it was a joke. Right? All right. Anyway, Caviezel himself said he has no regrets. He says we have to give up our names, our reputations, and our lives to speak the truth. And then he assured the interviewer that, you know, there is a reward in heaven even for actors like me. Now, the Beatitudes weren't meant to be a treatise on leadership, but I think they provide some interesting insights into the kind of leaders, the kind of influencers that we might be as we follow Jesus. The words that immediately follow this part of the sermon are, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. It seems that Jesus expects his followers and thinking and acting to lead the world into his direction. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your brilliant Sermon on the Mount, let it become part in the fabric of our lives. Mold us into your character. Let us influence a world that so desperately needs you.
to follow you. In Christ's name, amen.